So 1 Timothy and chapter 3. And we're zooming in this morning just on three verses really. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16. Let me pray. Father God, uh, the Lord Jesus told us that uh, his words are spirit and truth. And we pray now as we hear his words given by uh, his Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, that the truth of them uh, would bury itself deep in our souls. Uh, Would they give us life? Uh, And our Father, uh, would they shape us and conform us to be uh, the people of the church that Christ wants to build. We ask in his name. Amen. <coughs> so 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, Imagine with me this morning that that you had just uh, got hold of some some earth-shattering news, good news, some some fantastically brilliant news good news, the the kind of news that would revolutionise everybody's life on the face of the planet. Uh, Not just news about you and your family, and not just news that would be of interest to the uh, church here in Leeds, but but the kind of news that that would would interest everybody, from from North Pole to South, from East to West, Uh, the cure for cancer, the the end to world poverty, Uh, the news that would bring world peace, whatever it might be, what would you do with it? If you had just a piece of information that you just had to get out. Well, I guess we, if resources weren't a problem, if resources weren't a problem, I guess we'd we'd be on every news channel, uh, on the BBC, Channel 4, ITV, CNN, Sky News, making sure we were beamed across the planet. Uh, We'd have those flashing billboards up in in Times Square in New York, Piccadilly Circus uh, in London. Uh, we'd send messengers who could speak different languages uh, to, to each uh, of the groups across the planet. Uh, we'd send planes uh, into unreached regions uh, of the rainforest, some trailing banners in the sky in, the, in order that everybody might see and hear this good news. Verse 16 is God's summary of his good news. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He, that's Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Its it's phrase is a little poem, a little hymn. In fact, it may well have been an early church hymn. It's hard to know. But but it's Paul's summary here of, of the gospel, the news that God wants everybody to hear. It's about who Christ is and what he's done. He was manifested in the flesh. That that tells us who Jesus is. Uh, If if you're manifest in the flesh, you've shown yourself in the flesh. Therefore, Paul is saying Christ was God who appeared in the flesh. Uh, If uh, on the news uh, we heard that the Queen turned up in Leeds City City Centre 
Okay, no news presenter would say the Queen turned up in Leeds City Centre in human form. Okay, obviously she turned up in human form. She's a human. What else is she going to do? But, but if you say he, Jesus, manifested, turned up in the flesh in human form, you're implying that there is more than just human form to who he is. It's subtle, but, but it's a clue to Jesus' identity. He is the God who came to earth, God who took on flesh. And then the rest of the, the poem, I, I think, is meant to tell the story that there are debates in the commentaries about how exactly you're meant to break it up and what each line means. But I think roughly it tells the story of his life. He, he came in the flesh. He was born at Bethlehem. God became man. That already is pretty stunning news. He didn't remain in heaven, invisible, immortal, unapproachable. But he took on flesh, became one of us. Vindicated by the Spirit. I think that's getting at the resurrection. We're zooming all the way through Jesus' life. In the early chapters of Romans, in fact, the first few verses of Romans, uh, when Paul is introducing the the gospel to them, uh, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. That the Spirit is associated with the resurrection. The Spirit rose him from the dead and showed that he really was who he, who he said he was, this Messiah, this King, this Son of God. And that's why he's vindicated. He wasn't just a criminal executed by the Romans. He was shown to be the one he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, come to rescue us. He was seen by angels. Do you remember what happened next after the resurrection? Children, do you remember what happened? What did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? What was the next thing he did? Yeah, Brilliant. He spent 40 days with the disciples. And then what did he do? Exactly. He rose up. He went back up to heaven and there were angels there, if you remember, in the early chapters of of Acts. So he he goes up, as it were, with the angels to heaven. He's then preached among the nations. The disciples go out to all corners of the earth. Uh, People believe on him. And then that last line is the one that throws us a little bit. Taken up in glory. Sounds like it could be talking about the ascension again, doesn't it? Going up to heaven. But if that's already happened, then perhaps that last line is about, well, ultimately his his, his return when his glory is fully revealed, he's, he's enthroned publicly, if you like, uh, on the last day. Whatever the, the details of, of the poem, it, it is Paul singing this hymn of good news, God's good news. He has come to rescue us. We can now know God. We can be saved. We can get through the enemy of death because Christ has done it. So if we put our trust in him, he'll forgive our sins and he will carry us through death. And say, God, who has all the resources in the world, who's not short of money, not short of power, has nothing that can restrict him, no enemies that can hold him back, God has this incredible news, news that death is defeated, sin is forgiven, that there's a whole new world. And how does God, the one with all the resources in the world at his disposal, how does he want that message to go out? What is his strategy for letting the world know? It's you, isn't it? It's you and me. It's the church. God has got a, a, a thousand, thousand angels. I don't know how many. Lots. More than John can count when he sees in heaven. God could click his fingers and write in the sky. God could boom across the earth the gospel message. And yet he doesn't. His plan is the church. <clears throat> and that is why the church is, is Paul's focus in these two or three verses. I just want to ask two questions pretty simply this morning. 
Who are you and what are you for? Okay, who are you and what are you for? I hope they don't sound rude. They're not personal. Who are you and what are you here for? No, but, but who are you? Particularly if, if you're a Christian person. And if you're not, I hope these will help you understand these verses and what we think about this morning will help you understand, if you like, how you would come to know this God. Who are you and what are you for? I read a, a few months back about a, a school uh, in Uganda. And uh, it, was, it was out in the sticks. Uh, and uh, eventually some journalists went to visit for, for reasons that, that don't concern us this morning. And they found that um, the school had a, a bell outside, or what was being used as a bell, dangling from the, from the roof. And when the kids had to come in from, from, from playtime, the teacher would pick up a rock and bang it against this bell. Except it wasn't a bell, it was a bomb. An unexploded bomb that was left over from one of the wars. And the teachers were smacking it with a rock. Because, obviously, they didn't realise what it was. If you don't know what something is, you don't know how to use it. And you, you can get in a, a real mess. But what is the church? Who are we? Who are you? Well, let's look at verse 15. Almost all the answers are in verse 15 this morning. Who are you? Verse 15. Uh, Paul wants Timothy, but the rest of us by extension, to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Who are you? You, if you're a Christian, are the people that God lives among, lives within, we might say. You are the people that God lives among, lives within. And see how he describes the church. The church is literally the house of God. The ESV's gone for a bit of interpretation there by putting household. It's just a normal word for a house. And, and actually, I, th- I think it's unhelpful they put household rather than just house. Because the word is deliberately ambiguous. Uh, in English, we can use the word house in two ways, or at least two ways. And it's the same in the Bible. Uh, Old and New Testament, in fact. But the first way the Bible talks about God's house is when it, when it speaks about the temple. There's no special word for temple in the Old Testament, it's just the word for a house. So when they build the, the literal physical temple in Jerusalem, if we were just translating it literally, they'd be building a house for God. Children, remember the story? They, uh, they build it, it's got amazing pillars, it's got different rooms, it's got gold furniture scattered throughout it, it's beautifully decorated, and then when they finish it and pray that God would come and move into his house, well, the removal men don't turn up, do they? God doesn't send packers to bring in his furniture and sort of wander through the front door. No, this huge cloud comes out of heaven, this fire cloud, and, and zooms down into the center of the temple. And from then onwards, that is the place where God lives on earth. Now, of course, in one sense, God is everywhere. He's not, he's not constrained. He's not like us, where you can draw around a circle around us and spot us exactly on Google Maps. But, but that is the place, the physical temple, where, where if you wanted to meet God, if you wanted to, to, to go and worship him, for example, that's the place you had to go. And amazingly, as the Bible story unpacks, and we move to the New Testament, we see the fire and cloud come down a, another time. Only once, actually, in the, in the New Testament, when, when the sort of fire and the wind and the rushing and all the sort of signs that went with that a great day when God moved into the temple, they happen once in the New Testament. It's the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and the fire and the rushing wind go not into a, a new building, but go into people, believers. That's why Paul says to the church, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, in Corinthians. 
God doesn't dwell in buildings. There's nothing sacred, probably unsurprisingly, about Woodhouse Community Centre. There's nothing sacred, for that matter, about Leedsminster or Westminster Abbey. They are beautiful buildings, they're historic buildings, but God doesn't dwell there any more specially than he does elsewhere. God doesn't dwell anywhere physically anymore. Sometimes if you visit certain some denominations' buildings, you'll see this little red light on sort of up on, usually up high. And that's to tell you that some of the, the, the bread and the wine that was used for communion is still in the building. And therefore, because in those, in those understandings, they, they think that the, the, the wine is the blood of Christ and the bread has come the body of Christ, Jesus is in the building. God is there. But, but the Bible will have none of that. In the New Testament, God's special presence is in his people. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, in you. So when Paul says, I want you to know how to behave in the house of God, part of what he's trying to evoke in the Ephesians' minds is that imagery that they are the ones in whom God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, dwells. But, but the word house, as I said, has two meanings. And the ESV's picked up the other one, household. A house can also mean a family. If you talk about the house of Windsor, we mean the Queen's family. Now, this is the sense that Paul's already used it earlier in chapter 3, when he's describing what elders or, or overseers, bishops, if you like, are meant to do. Look at verse 5. If someone doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? Same word. Now, thankfully there, Paul is not saying you can't be an elder if you're no good at DIY, if you can't manage a physical house. Okay, otherwise, I would be resigning tomorrow morning. In that sense, the word house clearly means family. So the second sort of set of imagery, if you like, that Paul is trying to bring up in the Ephesians' mind, alongside the idea that they are, that the New Testament version of this great temple is that they are God's family, his sons, his daughters, the the younger brothers and sisters, if you like, of Christ. That's why it is the church of the living God. If you want to, to meet God now, you do so primarily through the church. Let me ask you a question. Who are you? That question would become, who are you? If, someone, if, if you had to answer that, I wonder what you'd say. I think very, very quickly, our minds go to an individualistic answer. Well, I am a dad. I am a husband. I am a lawyer. I am a student. If we're a bit downcast at the moment, well, I'm a, I'm a single guy. I'm a struggling mum. I'm a lonely wife. I'm an overweight man whatever it might be. Or, or if we're doing okay, then the success story. I'm an engineer. I'm an Oxbridge graduate or Leeds graduate. I'm a Yorkshireman. I'm a dad. The kind of things that, that might make us proud. But our identities are very individualistic. That's what society tells us to, 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 to do, isn't it? It's what comes from within, as we thought about in Sunday schools in the mornings. But, but the first answer, I think, that the Bible gives us, when, when we're told to... to to give our identity, is is to think corporately, to answer the question, who are you? Not with, I am, but we are. Or, if you you want to be pedantic, I am a part of the family. I'm a part of the temple. This is your identity. Uh, This is who God has made you to be. God has decided, if you're a Christian, that he's going to dwell in you. That, that, 
it trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Oh, the Holy Spirit lives in Christians. It's an extraordinary thing. Imagine if you'd been there the day that the, the glory cloud, this fire and smoke, came down on the temple. It was so extraordinary that, that everyone had to get out. Okay? They, they were fleeing the building. They were running headlong to get out because God's holy presence was coming in. Fire, smoke, and they, even the high priest, who was, the, if you like, the sort of representative of the nation, even Solomon the king, had to absolutely leg it to get out of there. And now God says he dwells in us, in you. It's an extraordinary privilege. Uh, Who are you is a question that we need to answer, not by looking down and in at ourselves, but also by looking up. I'm someone that God has decided to dwell in. We are the people, the family of God. We look up and we look around to give the answer. I'm part of this family that God is building on earth, this household that he's building on earth. It should be a great comfort to us. It is incredible that he chooses to live within us. If you like, the gospel is not just that God forgives you and will let you into this wonderful paradise world, true though that is. He he also wants such a close relationship with you that that he dwells within you mysteriously. If you feel downhearted or depressed or down on yourself or your self-esteem is tiny, this isn't exactly meant to puff us up and make us think, oh, actually, I'm fantastic, but rather just to, to move our, our, our sight from looking at ourselves and trying to uh, well, either beat ourselves up or, or find good things to cheer ourselves up. And actually, wow, you, God, you are incredible. And you do want to know me. So it doesn't matter really how great I am or, or not great I am. It doesn't really matter what I think of myself at all. I can look up and say, look, I am part of the family of God. He wants me in his family. Some of you might have relatives that... If you're really honest, you almost might wish you didn't have. But you don't choose your relatives, do you? Most of us have got difficult family members, one way or another. We didn't choose them. But God did choose you. He built you into this temple, to use the other metaphor. You may not feel like it. You might not feel like God dwells within you. You might feel far from him. But that's why we need the Bible, the word to come from us from outside. If you put your trust in God, you are part of his family. It's a great comfort. It's also, I think, a challenge to us. See, Paul's concern is that, that he's away. See, in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but, but he, he might be delayed. Also, Paul's always getting arrested or chucked in jail or mobs lynching him or all sorts of things happen, so he can't do what he wants to, to do. So you say, until I get to you, what's his real concern? Why has he written the letter? Verse 15, in, in many ways, is the key verse of the whole letter. He wants the Ephesians to know how they ought to behave in the household of God. How they ought to behave is this church. You can imagine, again, in the days of the Old Testament, if you did go into the temple, okay, you're a Jewish and you came into the temple, your surroundings would shape you, wouldn't they? I mean, that happens today, doesn't it? Okay, if you walk in, if you're a student, you walk into lectures, you behave in a certain way. If you walk into the office, your surroundings shape how you work. You're not going to crack open a beer in the middle of a a board meeting or something. Uh, If you walk into one of these great buildings, you know, Westminster Abbey's, St. Paul's Cathedral's, then they probably do shape how how you speak. You're not likely to yell across the room because your surroundings, where you are, shape how you act. Or imagine walking into the temple. You're not going to walk in there drunk, are you? 
You've got to watch your language, watch how you speak in there. You're going to be very aware that you, you are, if you like, in the presence of God. Well, says Paul, I'm concerned with how you behave in the household of God, which is the church. So how ought we to behave? Well, think about how you treat other people. Think how you treat your brothers and sisters. How do you think of others at, at church? Not just the ones who are your natural mates. Okay, we all have some people we get on with easily and others we don't. But, but those, you, you know, even just in this small manifestation of the church at Christchurch Central, this new corner, if you like, of God's family. How do you treat people? Do you really think of them not just as your family, but God's family? I imagine, you know, the for sale sign went up next door and uh, new, new, new neighbours moved in and it turned out to be the Middletons, okay, Kate Middleton's parents. Okay, you, would, you, would, you would really want to make friends with them, wouldn't you? I, mean, I don't know them, I don't know anything about them. But these are the future Queen's parents. Okay? You are going to, be, you're going to be nice to them, you're going to be kind to them, you're going to want to know them. Okay? These are people who are going to be important. They're royalty, well, their daughter is at least. The people you're sat next to this morning, brothers and sisters, are, they, are, they are not simply your brothers and sisters, though they are that, but they are God's children. Do you treat them as such? It's very easy, I think, to, to fall into a mindset uh, with, with church, where, where, where church becomes, well, really, we, we acknowledge it's a sort of family because we, we, we see that in the Bible, but church more becomes a, a thing I go to, perhaps a Sunday or whatever. So it's a filling station. Church is about my spiritual growth. It's a thing I use to grow as a Christian. And again, we're very individualistic and, and become consumers or church is a charity that I help out. You know, I, I see myself mainly as someone who gives to church. You know, I, I serve on the, the, the setup team or I serve on the children's team or whatever it might be. And we start thinking of it as primarily something that, that I give towards rather than as an identity. Paul is saying that you've got to consider yourself as one family, as this holy house or this dwelling place of God. So we shouldn't resent church, therefore. I wonder if, do you ever fall into the, to the trap of thinking of yourself as a volunteer at church? I'm a vol- I volunteer on the, the setup rotor, I volunteer with the kids' work, I volunteer with music. Well, just take the household imagery, take the family imagery and press it, press it through. What would you think if, if, when you sort of met me for the first time, I said, oh, I'm, I'm John T., I'm a, also a volunteer dad, volunteer husband. You know, yesterday morning, I, I volunteered to, to help get the kids dressed. I, I volunteered to, to give them some food. But I, you know, I'm not going to overcommit. You know, I've got to, got to respect my own time. I've got to respect my own priorities. Well, there's no such thing as a volunteer dad, a volunteer family member. There's no such thing as a volunteer Christian. This is God's household, not yours, not mine. So if you're going to rotate, you're not, you're not doing me a favour. I found that really helpful when, when another minister once said that at a conference. He said he used to feel really guilty about asking people to help out in various ways at church. And then he su- suddenly realised that they weren't doing him a favour. It's not like it was his club he was running, like he was running the, you know, the chess club or whatever. It's God's household. We're brothers and sisters together. 
How high a priority do you therefore have knowing other Christians, serving one another? How high a priority is meeting with one another? It's a Russian proverb I came across. The church is near, but the roads are icy. The pub is far, but will walk carefully. See what they're saying? The church is near, but the roads are icy. Mm, Better not risk it. The pub is far, but hey, we'll walk carefully. If if I want to be there, I can be. This is the household, the family of God. So when we gather together, there should be a huge priority in our week. Now I know, okay, people get ill. There are reasons, but it is the date in the diary for the family gathering. Who are you? You are the people that God dwells within. What are we for? What are you for? Two things, to proclaim and preserve the gospel. Two parts of the imagery in verse 15 again. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Children, what do pillars do? What would happen if we took the pillars out of this room? Bang, it would all fall down, wouldn't it? Pillars hold things up. The church is to, to hold up the gospel, the truth, to the world so that the world can see it. Which are proclaim the gospel in that sense. As we said earlier, the church is God's plan to get this amazing news about Christ to the ends of the earth. He is not going to send Gabriel to do it. He is not going to have angels with trumpets blasting over every city in the world, proclaiming Christ, who came in the flesh, died, rose again, ascended to heaven. We are the plan. Imagine as Christ went back up to heaven uh, and the angels applauding and cheering, you know, seeing what he's done on the cross in the resurrection and, and then saying, you know, Lord, what are you going to do? What now is the plan? For, for proclaiming, as verse 16 says, the gospel to the nations. And Christ saying, well, I've left these 11 guys. And he's like, come on. Yeah, but what's the real plan? Where's the power? Where's the glory? No, I've left it with those 11. Those 11 who then preach and some more believe, who preach and some more believe. That is the plan. We are the plan. You are the plan for reaching the nations. Look, if you're not a Christian, this is it, I'm afraid. Okay, if you want to meet God, there is no way you can go and... and and see a wonderful sign. God is not the kind of God who does spectacular, miraculous things. And if you won't believe in God until he has fulfilled your expectations, then then you will probably never believe. I think naturally we we think of God almost like Thor in the Avengers, if you've seen that. We expect God to be power and and might and spectacle. You know, every time Thor goes somewhere, he sort of zooms off and there's lightning and flashes and all the rest of it. Super powerful. But what do we read about Christ? He became flesh. God became flesh. If you wanted to see God, you would see a Jewish carpenter, average looking bloke. About my kind of age, younger in fact. And yet that was God in the flesh. God, the God of the, the Bible, the true God, doesn't reveal himself in power and majesty, but, well, through weakness. And that continues in the church. As with Christ, so with the church. Churches are not impressive. <laughs> Churches do not look powerful, and yet it is through the church that that gospel message goes out. Well, if you're a Christian, you see the church is central to God's plan to reach the nations. Not, let me say gently, the parachurch. You know, parachurch are sort of organizations set up that aren't run by the church, but are sort of Christian groups, mission agencies. UCCF will be a parachurch. Now, they, are, they have their place. Let me, let me not be misheard. They're not bad things. But ultimately, God's plan is to use the church. And church here, when Paul talks about the church in verse 15, it doesn't just mean, hey, a group of Christians. That The church has definition to it. We've seen earlier in chapter 3, for example, the church has elders or bishops and 
to, 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 to guide it. It has leadership. We've seen earlier in, in, in chapter 2 that the church has boundaries, that certain people are to be included and excluded, kicked out if they, they preach a false gospel. Uh, there is discipline, in other words. Uh, if you, I don't know, fly to parish and bump into another Christian and have a coffee, that is not a meeting of the church. Now, you are both members of the big one church, but that is not a church meeting. It's just two Christians having coffee. God's plan is to use the church, this organisation, more than just Christ essential, of course, but this organisation to reach the nations. And that's why all the other stuff in 1 Timothy matters. So you might read 1 Timothy and find it a bit boring, or, or when we... Uh, begun preaching through it, thought, oh, really? All this stuff about elders and deacons, a bit later, how we care for widows, I don't know any widows. Or... The point of all this stuff is so that the gospel will be held out. That's why the, the ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and the elders, all that sort of stuff, it's why it matters. It's not secondary in the sense that we can just tide it away and ignore it. The point of getting it right is so that the gospel will be held up. But not just held up, also held out. It's not just a pillar, but a buttress of the truth. If a pillar holds something up, a buttress holds something together. It's a bit like the, the, uh, my friend, um, in fact, the guy who's coming to speak on the weekend away, you can ask him about this, he'll be delighted. Uh, he was, James Buchanan, he was really into to tropical fish. Um, and he used to have this fish tank full of uh, weird castles and weird looking fish and all the rest of it. And he was really, really into it. I thought it was a bit odd. Uh, we used to share a house together. Um, but, but this tank that lived in our house, the, the tank was the thing that, if you like, buttressed the, 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 the environment, the fish and the water. You didn't look at the tank, but without the tank, the whole thing would fall apart. The church's job is to keep the gospel coherent. It is the buttress of the truth. It's not that the church makes up the gospel, but rather it's the church that preserves the gospel to pass it down the generations. Uh, throughout the letter of, of 1 Timothy, and in fact, to Timothy, and in fact, Titus. Paul is constantly saying to these, these ministers, you must preserve or guard something. But it's not actually the Bible. He never says preserve the Bible, preserve the scriptures. Now, of course, we have to do that because the Bible is God's word. But what Timothy is told to guard, it is described in other words, chapter one of verse 10, what's Timothy to do? Uh, wrong reference. Uh, he's to preserve the pattern of sound teaching. Preserve the pattern of sound teaching. Uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, what's he to do? Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Not the scriptures, but the deposit entrusted to you. Uh, in 2 Timothy, uh, the next letter, verse 1. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 1, verse 14, that was. We could go on into Titus. There's this repeated theme, guard the good deposit or guard the pattern of sound teaching. That is not just the Bible, not just copy the text, but make sure the Bible is taught rightly, the gospel is passed on. It is Timothy, and by extension, primarily therefore elders as it's passed down the generations, but all of us as a church, who, who keep the gospel pure, keep the same gospel that Christ passed to the apostles as the gospel that we pass to the world. Again, that's why these things in 1 Timothy matters. That's why we have elders. Uh, it's why we 
uh, work, all the kind of the life, the pattern of life that, that Paul explains in chapters 1 through 6 into our church life. Because the more and more we obey the scriptures, the more we'll be able to keep a clear grasp on, on the gospel. If we just say, look, we're a church that has Bibles on the chairs, therefore we're okay, we're going to be in trouble. Every heretic in church history preaches the Bible, just they preach it wrongly. If we just say, oh, we've got this thing called the Westminster Confession, which is a really sound document, so our church is okay, we're going to be in trouble if the men entrusted to preach it aren't really teaching the truth. It's no use having a denomination that says, look, our doctrinal basis is really sound. If actually all the preachers just ignore it. It's no use having a denomination that says, look, we trust the Bible if all the preachers ignore it. It's the church's job to if you like, preach the Bible rightly, to rightly handle the word of truth, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. Therefore, if you sink the church, ultimately you'll sink the gospel. Or as John Stott says, the church depends on the truth for its existence, but the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. This is why church is so important. Without it, the gospel would, would the same thing would happen to the gospel as happened to all the Avengers at the end of you know, the Avengers movie, if you've seen that. Two Avengers references this morning, really on brand. He snaps, the big baddie snaps his fingers, and I, I don't know what it is, a half of humanity just disintegrate. That's what will happen to the gospel message and gospel witness if we don't care about the church, or if we just relegate it to some unimportant secondary stuff. This is why we need to care, for example, about training elders and ministers. First of all, in verse 15, that how one ought to behave, literally, is how you ought to believe. He's talking to Timothy in the singular, it's a singular verb. And given that he's just been talking about what elders are meant to do, and Timothy kind of fulfills that role, I, I think Paul is saying, look, Timothy, you need to know how to protect and preserve the gospel. As a church, therefore, we need to invest, part of our duty is to invest in training up the next generation of elders, some full-time, some not. Uh, it's, it's why, even though it's costly, sending men off to Bible college matters, for example. Uh, giving some of your money to do that is a, is a gospel use. That is part of what we are here for. A few, a couple of months ago now, I had to go into hospital for a sort of minor procedure. I was awake for it, uh, but the surgeon, uh, he was uh, in action, at one point found a little, basically found a little growth he had to cut out. Uh, and he said to the, to the nurse in language, I didn't understand, you know, basically load the cutty things, except that, you know, he used technical language. And special little cutty things that are going to cut out this growth. And I heard the nurse say, oh, yeah, I have done one of these before, but, but it's been a long time. I can't quite remember. Um, I'm just going to go and see if Jane's here. And she stuck her head out of the theatre door. And said, Jane, Jane. And I said, Jane. I'm awake at this point. I said, please, someone find Jane. <laughs> Comes back in. No, hasn't found Jane. So she says to the doctor, well, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> you do not want to hear that. You do not want to hear that. You want your doctors and your nurses trained. I don't want to hear from the doctor, oh, I think I've seen this on, on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> Fire up Wikipedia, I'll be okay. Well, neither do you want to hear that from your ministers or your elders. You want them to be deeply trained to be able to protect and proclaim the truth. Okay, this matters. It's every bit as serious as medicine, ultimately. Part of our job is to raise up the next generation of elders to do this work. And some will be sent out as missionaries and ministers. They might not benefit us immediately. Think about Zach. Or we're going to have a new guy working with us next year, a new Zach, alongside Zach, called Jake. Do we need them? Well, not exactly. I don't know if Zach's in the room. 
Honestly, we'll survive without Zach. But part of what we're doing is just, just potentially training him for the future to fill that role entrusted to Timothy uh, and others down the generations. So what are you here for? You are the household of God. You are here to proclaim and to preserve the gospel. You are the plan. And therefore you have a purpose. You might feel you're achieving very little for God at the moment. Can't remember the last time you spoke to a non-Christian. You can't remember the last time you saw anyone come to faith. But actually, if you are learning how to behave in the household of God, and as we unpack the rest of 1 Timothy, it'll be things like fighting materialism, not just living a very materialistic lifestyle. It'll be about, as we've already seen, praying. It'll be about helping as a church to get the right people in leadership. As you live out all the things that 1 Timothy says, you are helping God's cause in the world. You as an individual, if you think of yourself as an individual, you might think, I'm just not doing anything. I'm useless. But actually, as you pray, as you give, as you live out this life, you are helping preserve and proclaim the gospel. We'll each have different roles. It'll be ordinary, not spectacular, but that is how God works. He is a God of the ordinary, a God who, who works through the hidden ways, we might say. Because he is the God of verse 16, the God who was manifest in the flesh, who came to earth, not in bright, shining glory and power, but as a Jewish carpenter. So give yourself to, to the church. Give yourself to this household that is your family and ultimately God's family. Uh, give yourself to the proclaiming and the preservation of the gospel that it might go to all nations. That is who you are and that is what you are for until Christ returns to welcome you into that eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the privilege of being sons and daughters of the God of all creation. We praise you for being younger brothers and sisters uh, of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. We praise you for the uh, incomprehensible, unfathomable privilege of being filled with your Spirit as the temple was in days gone by. Please raise our view of your church and give us a great love for one another, a great respect for one another and awe for what it means to be part of your family, to be this temple of the living God. And use us, we pray, uh, here in Christchurch, uh, to preserve the gospel, but also to proclaim it to the nations around. We are weak, you are mighty, uh, but show your power through our weakness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.